following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Yeah, just a reminder, uh, Brad's encouragement last week in connection with our spiritual discipline this month of corporate worship and being together to make a commitment to make sure we are here together. Every Sunday this month, I had one of my seminary professors, uh, Alex Montoya, had always said to us in our pastoral uh, preaching class that you never call in sick, you crawl in sick. And so, of course, I understand we don't want to get everybody else sick, but uh, apparently that's been going around. But best you can, uh, make sure to commit to attend every Sunday this month. And as Brad also encouraged us, if you've been coming to Calvary for a time, if you call this church home, but you're not yet committed as a member to go through that process and become a member, to identify formally that you are a part of this church family here at Calvary. And then also he encouraged us to make sure to to go to one of the scheduled gatherings. We have the women's prayer at the end of the month. Uh, I think the men have a men's breakfast coming up in a couple of weeks as well. And so these are opportunities as well as attending the Sunday school fellowship classes that we have uh, going every Sunday. And so these are some ways again to seek that we can come together and corporately worship our God at Calvary. It's a priority that we want to make sure. And that's why we have the first month focused on that. Speaking of priorities, um, and this time of year, I'm reminded of uh, two guys who were at a Super Bowl game not long ago, and there was an empty seat between the two of them. And one of the men looked at the guy on the other side of the seat, and he said, I can't believe this seat is empty. Every other one is filled. I mean, this game is obviously very popular. How is it that this seat didn't sell? The other guy responds to him and says, well, actually, it did sell. It was for my dad, but he died. So the first man says, I mean, what do you say? I'm so sorry to hear about that. But but I'm surprised that uh, you weren't able to give his ticket to a friend or a relative. And then the other man replied, yeah, me too. But they all insisted on going to the funeral today instead. So, <laughs> yeah, you talk about misplaced priorities. <laughs> and yet, how often do we do the same exact thing in our relationship with God? How often do we set him aside for things that might seem important, things that might seem uh, like something we want to do, but are not the real priority? Last week, Pastor Ed, he began our year of spiritual disciplines with an excellent, impactful message, focusing us on our ultimate priority of worshiping as a community our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, today uh, we're lifting the note ban. You can take notes today. Um, As we return to the minor prophets uh, today, it just so happens that our next prophet draws attention to this same priority, the ultimate priority of God and worshiping Him. This prophet, who is number 10 of the 12, dwells in relative obscurity. And as such, his name is often mispronounced. Some call him Haggai, others Haggai, others say Haggai, probably the most prominent is Haggai. Technically, for Hebrew scholars, his name should be pronounced Haggai, but that's too hard for me to say, so I'm just going to go with Haggai, and I'll apologize to him when I see him in heaven. But 
In any case, just as Haggai's name has often been missed, so too has his message. Uh, We will soon see that his message is focused exclusively and primarily on rebuilding the temple. As you can see, the picture behind me reflects that. But often what happens is Haggai only gets pulled out when there's a church building program or some focus on fundraising or giving. But his message goes much deeper than that, much deeper to the core even of why we exist and to see that please turn in your bibles if you're not already there to the book of haggai at 38 verses haggai is second only to obadiah and being the shortest book in the old testament but though the book may be short in length it runs deep in importance focusing us on the greatest priority that we have in life and it is a book that we cannot ignore so we're going to read the first chapter, his Haggai's first message this morning. And as I do that, would you please stand in honor of the Word of God? Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, Haggai says, In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. The people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Let's pray. Oh, Father, there's so much here for us to learn, for us to apply. I pray, Lord, that you would be the one speaking, that it is your word and your word alone comes forth, and that you would give us understanding, that you would stir our hearts as you did the people, Lord, to to apply your truth and to know your message here, Lord, to make you priority, to worship and cling to you. Father, I pray you would move in each of our hearts by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, Haggai here, he begins his message by referring to a Gentile king, Darius. 
rather than a Hebrew king, which is what we would normally find among many of the prophets as they would define or describe the time period in which they preached. And by him referring to this Gentile king, we find ourselves in a very different place in the history of Israel compared to when we left off with Habakkuk and Zephaniah, our last two prophets that we looked at. In fact, uh, over 70 years have passed since Habakkuk had prophesied. You remember what he said? He talked about the Chaldeans, that God was going to raise them up to be an instrument of God's correction of his judgment upon his people for their idolatry and for their injustice. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. The final two chapters of, or final few chapters of Second Kings and Second Chronicles describe that very event that I noted here at the top there, the 70 year exile when Nebuchadnezzar through three different attacks swept into Jerusalem and Judah taking many away into exile at each attack. In fact, the prophet Daniel was taken during the first attack in 605 B.C. And then Ezekiel was taken in the second one in 597 B.C. And in those first two assaults, Nebuchadnezzar left much of the infrastructure of Judah intact. But he grew weary of the constant insolence of Judah's leaders and the rebellion of her kings and rulers. And so in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar ordered a siege upon Jerusalem and burned it to the ground, completely destroyed it, including the temple. Jeremiah had declared that, that this exile, the destruction of God's land and the taking away the people into exile, that that would last for 70 years, one year for each Sabbath that they had neglected. And indeed, 70 years after Nebuchadnezzar's first attack on that fateful night when there was this hand appearing mysteriously writing on the wall before King Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember what happened that night? The Medes and Persians swept through and they took Babylon, the city that was indestructible, impenetrable in one night. They emptied the Euphrates that went into the city and got in that way and attacked and took the land. And so the kingdom of Persia became the dominant empire in the ancient Near East. And at this point, what I'd like you to do is I want to go back to Ezra for a minute. We're going to look a little bit at the history here because I think it's important to understand the context. And Ezra picks up where Second Kings leaves off at the time when Cyrus takes control and rules in the region. So let's we're going to go back to Ezra. We're going to be starting in Ezra 1.1 and look at a few verses there to get a feel for the events that were taking place. Beginning in verse 1 of Ezra 1, he too mentions the Cyrus, the king of Persia. Notice he says there, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, verse 2, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among all of you, his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel." He is the God who's in Jerusalem. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, this is a an amazing turn of events. 
70 years, the people have been stuck in the land of Babylon. And here this new king comes in. He takes out the old regime. And one of the first things in the very first year of his reign, he makes a decision that all the people who wanted to go back to Jerusalem could do that so that they could, of all things, rebuild the temple to God, whom Cyrus credits here as allowing him to build his empire. Cyrus took it upon himself to make sure that that the temple of Yahweh in Jerusalem was rebuilt by the Jews. And what's remarkable about this is not only his release, but that this exact event and the exact things that Cyrus had said to be done was predicted over 200 years earlier. The prophet Isaiah mentioned Cyrus by name in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. In fact, It says of him there, as God is speaking through Isaiah, It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. It's a sidebar here. Brothers and sisters, this is amazing. 200 years before it actually happened, the prophet Isaiah named the man who would actually call the people back to rebuild. Jerusalem was still intact at that point when Isaiah wrote. Here again, we're reminded the word of God is indeed the word of God. It is inspired by him. And again, not only did Isaiah predict a rebuilding of the temple, but more amazingly, he predicted who it is that would be ruling and would call that event to take place. In the late 1800s, a clay cylinder was discovered. I had meant to show it to you. It was dated to the 6th century B.C. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. And it is called that because on it there's inscriptions from Cyrus who recounts his victory over Babylon and how various gods had helped him to, to succeed in that conquest. And what's very interesting is on that cylinder, he describes how when he came into the land of Babylon, remember there's all these exiles, right, that Nebuchadnezzar had collected over the years. And what he decided to do when he came into the land and took over was to liberate them. And he talks about on this cylinder how he liberated these various nations so that they could go back and so that they could build or fortify their temples to their gods so that their gods could then tell his god Marduk to bless him because he was so kind. Very interesting, isn't it? Now, Israel was not mentioned on that cylinder, but it is definitely consistent with what we see here in Ezra and what he says to the Jews for them to go back and build their temple to Yahweh. And so we see God's sovereign hand at work in very interesting ways. And so Cyrus releases the exiles so that they would go back. Ezra chapter 1, he continues to describe how Cyrus did not send the people back empty-handed, but he says to, to those around the Jews who are leaving, you need to give them some money. You need to support this venture, and I will do so as well. And so they went back with gold and silver, money, food, supplies for the task. Chapter 2 of Ezra then lists out, we won't read it together now, but they list out all these names. Uh, almost 50,000 exiles went back into Jerusalem. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 2, the first two names that are on this list of exiles, Zerubbabel and Jeshua. These guys are going to show up a lot in the weeks to come as we look at the books of Haggai and Zechariah. In fact, we've already seen them in the first verse of Zechariah. Well, moving over to Ezra chapter 3, I want to read a few verses there because it then describes what happened after the people arrived back in the land, after the exiles returned. Let's take a look at verse 1, chapter 3 of Ezra. 
Now, when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation. For they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance as each day required. Afterward, there was a continual burnt offering, also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Now, the reason I read that will hopefully become clear in a little bit, but we see here that Ezra is referring to events that took place in the fall of the year 537 B.C. It was probably a year or so after Cyrus's decree. It was enough time for the people to make that 500 plus mile journey all the way from Babylon into Jerusalem. And then also a time for them to get settled, to find places to live and to be able to gather food and such. And notice here that once they accomplished these things, what did they do? They went up to the Temple Mount, right? They located the spot, the very spot on which the altar in Solomon's temple had been located. Remember the layout? I don't know, the picture's not up there anymore. But the layout where there's a, the temple building, but also in front of that was the altar, right? Where the people would come and bring their sacrifices. Well, they found that very spot and they erected another altar in order to offer sacrifices and offerings to the Lord consistently. And it was Zerubbabel and Jeshua who were the ones to make sure that event happened. And as we see in this passage, they then began to perform the offerings daily, continually, according to Mosaic law. And if we were to continue to read in Ezra chapter 3, we would see Ezra describing the work that they did on the temple. And in fact, got to a point where they had laid the foundation of the temple. And then he describes, starting in verse 10, a rather peculiar ceremony. The ceremony where once the temple foundation was laid, the Levites and priests and musicians all got out and there was this singing and this celebration and these shouts of joy. But at the same time, you could hear weeping and wailing and sorrow as the older ones who had not, who had seen Solomon's original temple in all its glory and splendor as they looked now with there's a foundation and a pile of rocks around it and they remembered what they had lost This was a a shadow of its former self, this temple, and they were grieved by that. They were discouraged. In fact, Ezra says at the end of chapter 3, it was so noisy, you couldn't tell the difference between the shouts of joy or the cries of grief. In any event, word gets out. People of Israel have returned. They're rebuilding the temple. And so their neighbors wanted to get involved. We read in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, it says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Eshadon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. But Zerubbabel And Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord our God as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. 
Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. Interesting sequence of events. These people, this group of people who they say had been living there over a hundred years, they had been brought there from another place by the Assyrians. That was their practice. If you remember, they would scatter people of the nations they would conquer, spreading them to other places in their empire and bringing others into that place. And that's exactly what happened with Israel. And so here are these folks. They lived in the land and around the land, probably the Samaritans. And they claim, hey, we worship the same God as you. Let us help you out in building this temple. Now, if that was really true, wouldn't they have built one themselves at some point? But you see, they were being deceptive. They didn't like the fact that these Jews were coming back to the land and reestablishing themselves in that land. And so they wanted to do everything they could to thwart that. Their religion was a polluted religion. It did include Yahweh, but also was mixed with many other gods. And so, again, the leaders saw through that. They rejected their offer to help. And Ezra then says that they are the enemies of God's people. After that rejection, they turn to manipulation and threats and political maneuvering to get them to stop building. And indeed, they succeeded. If you look at the end of Ezra 4, it says there, Then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now that should ring a bell. If you were listening at the beginning when I read from Haggai, do you remember what year he referenced as he began his ministry? Second year of the king of Darius. In fact, if we were to keep reading, Ezra 5 verse 1 says that God raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people to get to the process of building. It had been 16 years since they had stopped their labor and now Haggai appears on the scene. Okay, so let's make our way back to Haggai. I wanted us to have a look at Ezra so we get a little better understanding of the situation that confronted the prophet when he got up to speak. It's very important that we understand the events and the historical context around these prophets and what is going on. And if, I want you to put yourself in Haggai's shoes, right? You've been called to preach to these people to rebuild the temple. And what kind of people are you speaking to now? These are folks that 16 or more years earlier had made their way that 500 plus mile journey into Jerusalem. And what did they find when they got there? A decimated city, a temple that was totally destroyed. There was very little civil organization or infrastructure. They had to scramble for shelter and food as they looked around. The city itself had no walls to protect them. And so I think we'd understand if these exiles felt a little bit overwhelmed and discouraged when they got back. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't you expect it? Okay, I can understand that. In fact, we saw some of that discouragement spill out at the temple ceremony when the foundation was laid. And in addition to that, in addition to those circumstances, they had these people who didn't want them to be in the land and who were doing everything they could to make sure that they would not be able to build this temple and get established in the land and settled there. So they even threatened them. And Cyrus, he seems to have gone silent. He initiated this project, but then when these people, they were able to get it stopped, and Cyrus didn't seem to step in and say, no, I want it to continue. And so these people were discouraged. The building had stopped. There was nary a sound of a hammer clanging or rocks being moved or construction workers until Haggai comes on the scene. 
until God spoke through him. And in this book that we've been given from the prophet Haggai, he gives four messages. Four messages that all center around, they're all aimed at the rebuilding of the temple of God. And as I said earlier, the, the aim of these messages, was, it goes beyond just getting these people back to work. Haggai's goal is more than just making sure this building gets built. There is more beyond it. The temple was much more than a building. And that point is made very clear in Haggai's first message in chapter 1 that we read. And so in the rest of our time this morning, we're going to focus on his message, that first message, and see the ultimate significance in rebuilding the temple. And what I want to do is we're going to see that significance through three key statements that God makes throughout this first message that Haggai delivers. In those three statements, we will see not only the importance of Haggai's message to the people of his day, but also to us. The first of those key statements that God makes in Haggai's first sermon is found in verse 5 when God says, consider your ways. If we look back at verse 1 in Haggai, it indicates that he gave this message again on the first day of the month. He mentions the second year of King Darius, but also he notes it's the first day of the sixth month. Now that's an important thing to, to see here and consider. Um, the Darius here, by the way, that's referred to is not the same Darius as we see in the book of Daniel. That Darius, he governed only the region of Babylon when Cyrus took control in the Persian Empire. But this Darius was a military commander, a general of Cyrus's military. And when his son, Cyrus's son, died, this man, Darius, this Darius took control of the throne. That was around 522 B.C. And the date that Haggai gives here, it comes from the Babylonian lunar calendar. And careful study that others have done pinpoint its exact date, the first day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius, as August 29th, 520 B.C. You can write that down, August 29th, 520 B.C. Very important date. We can maybe have some celebrations at some point in time in the future. But actually, notice there, again, it says the first day of the month. That's a very important thing to consider. The first day of each month, if you remember from Mosaic Law, was the day that the people were to hold these new moon festivals in celebration of what God had provided for them. And we saw in Ezra, right, that they instituted and began celebrating these new moon festivals when they erected the altar, right? And so that's an ongoing thing. The first of the month, there'd probably be more people gathered as they crowded around to celebrate this new moon festival. And that is this day that Haggai chose to bring this message to the people. And the message is interesting. If you notice in verse 2, he doesn't address the crowd first, does he? Who does he speak to first? You see it there? The two leaders, right? Zerubbabel, who's the governor, the, the civic leader, and Joshua, the high priest, the religious leader. I think what happens, we're not told explicitly, but it looks like, based on what's given here in the first few verses, that Haggai goes to this new moon festival, most likely, and he, he gets Zerubbabel and Joshua and pulls them aside, and he tells them these words in verse 2. He speaks to them what God told him. And God says through Haggai, he recites to them, What's become looks like a common saying among the people. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So he gathers the two leaders together and says, you know what? God says, the people are saying, the time to rebuild the temple isn't now. It's not yet. But notice here in verse 2, 
There's a bit of a sting to God's remark here. He refers to the people here as not my people, not the people of Judah. He calls them this people. There's a little bit of relational distance here, isn't there? There's a sting to this. God's saying we have an issue. And then in verse 3, Haggai turns from his private meeting with these two leaders to speak openly to the people. We see that in verse 4 by the plural pronouns given there. Likely, again, he's probably standing at the Temple Mount, the crowd gathering around for the New Moon Festival. And Haggai then says these words in verse 4, speaking for God. He says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Again, he may even be pointing behind him and around him. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You sow much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. He earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. The sting in verse 2 has become a painful cut here in verse 5 as he repeats the rebuke. Consider your ways. Set your heart upon this. Think carefully about this situation. And notice he repeats that before and after verse 6, which is this rapid fire, this staccato message of uh, various things that were not going right for them. The necessities of food and drink and clothing had become scarce. Their economy was weak. And so God says, I want you to think carefully about what you are doing because there's a connection to what you are doing and what is happening to you. Verse 9, he says, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Again, he says there, they've worked, they've toiled, they've put in this effort. They've expected to be rewarded for their efforts, but instead they see very little. And why is that? What does God say is the reason behind the fact that they were producing little, even though they were working hard? What was the physical phenomenon going around them? Opposite to what we saw happening today and last night. <laughs> we received rain. They were not. There was a drought taking place. Verse 10. Notice it says the sky yielded little moisture. And the soil, its nutrients were so leached you could grow very little within it. And so as a result, the grain, the, the new wine, the oil, those staple crops in Israel were scarce. Certainly the people were aware. They knew there was a drought. Just as we have known such in our land. But they did not know what the source of that drought was. For you see, it wasn't a random event. It wasn't a natural phenomenon that took place. What was the source? What was the reason? Who was behind this drought? Verse 11, right? God says, I did it. I brought this drought. It's on me. And at that point, they'd probably think, well, what? Why? God answers the question. When he says there, why? Notice, he wants them to be asking that. They would probably be thinking, I'm reading between the lines a little here, but I can imagine thinking, well, why, God, are you bringing this on? We came back to the land. We left a nice, comfortable situation we were in. We came back to this situation. We faced opposition. We've really tried to, to get things right. We erected an altar to you. We're faithfully offering sacrifices. We're not practicing the idolatry or the injustice of our forefathers. We learned our lesson there. So why have you brought this drought on us? And as that question will be echoing through their minds, they would also be hearing God's words, which he repeated, consider your ways. 
This drought is connected to you. This drought is because of you. And in this, we too are reminded a valuable lesson, beloved, because there are times in life when God may bring hardship or difficulty, a circumstance, a trial as a consequence in our lives so that we would look at our own sin, so that we would consider our ways, so that we would be moved to seek holiness. Hebrews 12 talks about this, right? God disciplines us as a loving father, disciplines his children for our good. And so he will often bring hard things, difficult things to get our attention. Sometimes we need that knock in the head. What's going on here? That's exactly what's happening with the people of Judah. And I'm not saying that every bad thing in your life can be traced to something you do wrong. There are some of us here that that we get fixated on. Oh, what I do now, God? (laughs) Not saying every single bad thing is because of that. But there's a push these days to see God as this patient and caring and tolerant. And so his fatherly discipline is often overlooked, isn't it? It's often not even considered or thought about. And so as a result, we neglect the much-needed self-examination that at times God wants us to do. Theologian Mark Boda says this, Many within the church today have moved to where there is little sense or expectation of the intrusion of God into their everyday affairs. In light of this, experiences of hardship should always become opportunities for spiritual reflection in our lives, turning us heavenward to ask the hard questions. Indeed, self-examination is an important spiritual discipline. We'll probably touch on that a little bit when we talk about meditation later in the year. But think of all the passages where we're called to examine ourselves. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about during communion. It says, examine yourselves. They're in the context of, is there any disunity that you are fostering in the body? 2 Corinthians 13.5, Paul says, test yourselves, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Or Jesus, you remember in Revelation, each of those churches, several of them, he's telling them to consider what you're doing. Examine yourselves, if you will. Think about your deeds. This self-examination is exactly what God was telling the people of Judah to do as he called them to consider their ways. That's the first key statement in Haggai's message. The second one is found in verse 8 when God gives the command, rebuild the temple. Rebuild the temple. Again, picture, picture the prophet. He's, he's standing there amongst the people. He's amidst the rubble of the temple mount. He's calling Judah, the people of Judah, to their current condition. He says, there's this drought that's come upon you. You're suffering these situations with their crops. And he says, consider your ways. Think about it. There's a connection between what's going on around you and something that you are doing. And that connection has to do with the place in which they were standing. The temple. The temple. God says in verse 9, though you were expecting much by your efforts to eke out a living. Look, you, you actually see very little fruit, don't you? And why is that? What was God's answer? Look there in verse 9. Why? Because my house is ruined. It's a mess. It's still a bunch of rocks and burnt wood. It's interesting here. Haggai uses two similar sounding words to make the point. That word desolate in verse 9 is the Hebrew word harev. While the word for drought in verse 11 is chorev. He's trying to make the point. We would probably express it this way in English by saying, since my house is in ruin, I'll give you no rain. Now, you'd think God would be a little more understanding, wouldn't you? I mean, again, these people have been through a lot. (laughs) 
These people have been through a lot. They, they faced an enormous challenge in coming here. I mean, think about this. If, if somebody all of a sudden said to us, you know, hey, you want to go to a place that's far north in Canada, uh, and, uh, you know, there's, it's, there, it's been totally destroyed, but you want to go move there? That's a big decision. They journeyed a long distance. They've been trying to make a life for themselves in this unfamiliar land. Because keep in mind, many of them, probably most of them, were not born in Judah. They'd never set foot there. They were born and raised in Babylon. It's been over a generation. They were in an unfamiliar land. They were in a struggling economy. They faced this constant opposition, people that didn't want them there. And it wasn't like they were never going to build the temple, right? Remember, the saying that was going around is the time has not come yet. We're planning on doing it, but the time isn't right. They were saying that for a while. It's been nearly two decades, though, now. The Temple Mount is still a pile of rocks. So God's question is, okay, well, just when is the right timing going to be then? You see the problem here? There's a real problem here. Their negligence in rebuilding the temple reveals this about their hearts. And listen carefully. God was not their priority. He wasn't the most important thing to them. They had a, they had a situation where God had a place in their lives. They built him an altar. They, they were presenting the offerings morning and evening. They celebrated these new moon feasts. But the fact that they made no further effort to build God's house, to build his temple says very clearly that God's presence was not the central part of their lives. It was not the most important thing to them. Notice here, in Haggai's book, he uses the technical Hebrew word for temple only twice. He uses the word house to refer to God's temple eight times. I think in that, he's emphasizing a point that the temple was not just some building that's located behind the altar that had the ark in it and a few little utensils that were very valuable. That's not the purpose of the temple. It was much more than that. The temple represented God dwelling among his people. The temple was the throne room of God on earth. It was the place where the people could go to meet God. It was the place where they would gather to, to worship him corporately and praise him. It was the place in which he provided as a means for them to be forgiven. Through the sacrificial ceremonies that he talked about. They could not celebrate the Day of Atonement if there's no Holy of Holies. Think about that. That was a big deal. That was the day when the high priest would go in and he would ask for forgiveness for the sins of the people. They couldn't do that. The singular most important day of the year in regards to the people's relationship to God and dealing with their sin, they chose not to build a house to make sure that would happen. Again, this is more than just having a structure to keep the rain off of the temple instruments. It was the place where they could offer exuberant worship to God. And so it was to be the central place in their lives. And as I was thinking about this, I was reminded, do you remember where the tabernacle was located in the days of Moses? In the very center of the people. I can't remember the chapter now, which talks about the location of each of the 12 tribes. There were four in the north, four in the south, four in the east, four in the west, so that the temple would be in the middle. Now, why did God do that? Was he afraid that enemies would come and attack and destroy it? So he wanted all the people to get wiped out first? What was the message there? I am in the center. But see, 
These people didn't understand that or accept that or embrace that. David understood the significance of the temple. He brought the tabernacle back to Jerusalem, the great city, and he wanted to build this firm structure, a solid uh, permanent structure for God, right? Remember in Psalm 27, 4, David said, One thing I've asked from the Lord, that shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple. David saw that was a special place. He understood. Haggai understood. The temple was more than just a structure. It, it was God's presence among his people. It represented God. Now, as Solomon said, God was not confined to the temple. It wasn't like if there was no building, he couldn't be around. But I hope you understand, it was the symbol, it was the, the place in which God had given special importance, that he would manifest himself there, that his presence would be there. And so for them to, to shelve construction of the temple, the most, the most important building on the face of planet Earth, what were they really saying? Having God in their midst was just not that important. <laughs> That this place of corporate worship was not a big deal. That this means in which this place where we could offer, we'd celebrate the Day of Atonement, was not a priority. That recognizing and honoring God was not a priority either. God exposes this very clearly in two telling statements that he gives. The first one is back in verse 4. When after he recited the people's belief that it wasn't time to build, God then asked this rhetorical question. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? See, the problem God is identifying here is that ultimately it wasn't a building. It was their hearts, right? People will always make time. We will always put effort into what is important to us, don't we? Even if we face challenges, if it matters to us, we'll do it. And so we see here, God was not important to them, at least not compared to their comfort, their ease, their enjoyment, their luxury. That word paneled, it's an interesting word. It it means generally as a covering. Some scholars say it could refer to a roof, that the covering uh, over over the top of the building. And if if that was what God was referring to here, it would be the idea of your houses are complete, mine's not. Or the paneling can refer to the wooden wall panels that were put on homes, or the wainscoting, which would mean that God would then be pointing out the fact that you have these nicely furnished homes, while mine is a pile of rocks, burnt wood. And given the context here, I think it is that latter meaning that God is focusing attention on. We see this in the the second telling statement in verse 9. Notice down there when God says, my house lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. And I think the phrase there has this idea of you're giving all this time and constant attention to your homes. You're busy about taking care of your homes, your nice homes, and doing nothing with mine. The ESV says each of you busies himself with his own house there in verse 9. And what's interesting, too, this wainscoting, this wood paneling, it was typically something you would only find in palaces or in the houses of noblemen and rich people. But here it appears that many of the folks had it in their homes. And I'm thinking, now, where do you think the wood came from? (laughs) Right? God's subtly, not so subtly, pointing this issue out. 
Right? You remember again that in the beginning when they came, fall of 537 BC, they came, they had all this gold, silver supplies. They were able to purchase the cedar wood, nice cedar wood, in order to build the temple. But then they only laid the foundations, which was made of stone. And so there's a pile of wood standing at the building project. They might be thinking, you know, they got stopped, right? They ceased the work from the opposition. There's this nice pile of wood there next to the temple. Well, we can't let it go to waste. Hey, Charlie, you want some? Yeah, all right. And the guys start carting wood into their homes, building their nice places. I think that's what happened. Notice in verse 8, God tells him, go to the mountains, get some wood. But he doesn't talk about stones or gold or silver or bronze or any of the other supplies you'd use for building. He just mentions wood. Again, I think he's making a pointed statement there. You took my wood and you built your houses and you left mine desolate. What's most important to you here? It's a shameful example. John Blanchard said this, the people to whom Haggai was writing were not cheerful givers, but cheerful keepers. (laughs) Thanks, God. Appreciate it. We'll get to your house at some point in time. See, Haggai was commissioned not just to ensure that a structure be built, but that a God be worshipped. He was not sent to point out a task that the people had ignored, but to point out a God who the people had ignored. John Piper said their real problem is not the neglect of a building, but indifference to the glory of God. That's what this is all about. Look with me again at verse 8. God tells him, get the wood, rebuild the temple. And notice why. Because I'm cold out here. I don't have a place to stay. No. Notice he says there that I may be pleased with it and what? Be glorified. Ultimately, it's the pleasure and glory of God that is all that matters. And the people totally missed it. By not building the temple as a first priority, they showed that honoring God was not essential to them. Again, remember, this was the most important building in the land, on the planet. And if it was such, no matter what they were encountering, that would still be their priority and focus, right? Nehemiah had that passion, right? It was build a wall and that was it. Nothing was going to stop him. But see, they they faced oppositions. They had difficulties. Their lives were threatened, so they stopped. And I'm thinking, well, do you think Satan's going to take it easy when we want to do things that are going to honor and please God? You think he's going to step back and, you know what, you've got a passion for this. Just go right ahead. I won't get in your way. (laughs) Of course not. He knew what that temple meant. And so his mission was to make sure it didn't happen. So he stirred up the people of the land. Beloved, of course things are going to be hard when you make a decision to make God a priority. Of course it will be difficult. Reminds me of the guy... Who Jesus, uh, he told Jesus, remember the guy who said, let me first bury my own dead, then I'll come follow you. Let me go bury my father. Jesus said, let the dead bury their own dead. But he's saying, Lord, I got some things I want to take care of first, and then you'll be my priority. Then I'll give you my full attention. And God says, no, that is totally unacceptable. I am your priority (laughs) above your friends above your family, above comfort, above achievement, above uh, anything, above your own life. What was it Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37? 
He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow me, meaning giving up your life, he who does not do that daily is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. If Haggai has anything to teach us, it is this. Is God your priority? Is worshiping him the central focus of your life? Is he in the middle of your camp? Is exalting Christ your greatest passion? Or is there wainscoting on your walls? Are you using the talents, the resources, the time, the circumstances that God has given you for his work? Are you using those things for yours? How much do you give financially to advance the kingdom? How much time do you devote making disciples? How much do you preach the gospel to others? How often do you serve God's people? How much effort do you put in your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here in helping them be more like Jesus? Remember what Pastor Ed talked about last week? That we need to be spending time together. We must be because God has so set it up that we need to be in each other's lives to help each of us see Jesus. Beloved, we need to take to heart. You need to consider your ways. You need to honestly evaluate your own heart. Jason talked about it a moment ago. Sean talked about it. We have a mission here. We have a mission. If you're thinking, well, this book's talking about this temple. I have nothing to do with that. There's no temple anymore, right? It's gone. We're in the New Testament, the New Covenant. Why would a building in the Old Testament matter at all to me? I don't think it's a stretch to say, aren't we not about building a temple? Are we not considered the temple of God, his people? And as we go out and proclaim the gospel, we are building his temple. Are you? Are you making disciples? Their mission statement was to rebuild the temple as a, again, a, a focus, making God the priority. Our mission statement is making disciples. Is God's house your main concern? Is his glory your chief priority? Is what he wants your driving passion? Jesus made it very clear what he wanted when he left, didn't he? One simple command. Make disciples. Or is your main concern your comforts and wants? Do you truly desire status and achievement, the praise of others over God? And again, I'm asking you, consider your ways. As, as the layers of your heart are peeled away and you look more and more deeply into what's really there in the center, would you find the same thing that existed with these people, apathy? Again, lest you think these questions, well, these are questions, I, I'm the child of God, I've, I've been saved. These are questions for those people in Haggai's day, not for me. Again, think about these people that came to the land. These were the committed ones. Again, they came from a place of security and comfort and protection. And they left that place to go to the unknown, like Abraham. They didn't know what was going to face them when they got to Judah. And they started well, but eventually they succumbed to apathy. And why did that happen? They lost sight of their mission. 
They got to the land. They started well. They built the, or working, starting to build a temple. They put the altar there. And then they faced opposition. Then they stopped. Then they got distracted. Then they were no longer about God's mission. And then they became apathetic. There's a pattern here. We're in danger of the exact same thing. What is it that God warned the people when they entered into the promised land? They had a mission. Take the land and exalt me through it. They faced opposition. They were distracted. They became apathetic. And they eventually worshipped other gods. We face the same danger, beloved. If we lose sight of our primary mission of the Great Commission, if we lose sight of that, it's only a matter of time when we become apathetic, when the things of God, yeah, we'll still do this stuff. We'll still build the altar. We'll still celebrate the festivals. We'll still come bring burnt offerings. We'll still give God that little peace. But really, we're apathetic. It's a great danger for us. It's a great danger for us. Tim, this, this is scary. This is a kind of a commitment that sounds hard going to be difficult suffering yes you're right there will be challenges there will be difficulties following christ will not be easy satan's not going to be okay with this at all but do you remember what jesus said matthew 6 just reading it this week seek first you know the rest his kingdom and his righteousness i will take care of what you need Do you believe him? And we see that same comfort in the third key statement that God gives through Haggai. Look at verse 13 where he says to the people, I am with you. That reminds you of anybody else who said that? When he gave a mission statement to his church, make disciples and lo, I'm with you always. Make me the focus, the priority, the mission that I have for you. I will take care of everything else. I'm with you to the end of the age. Verse 12 shows us that Haggai's message had hit home. It says the rubble of Joshua, the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They said, okay, God, in faith, they went out and they started collecting trees. Timber. Notice at the end of verse 12, they no longer treated God flippantly, but it says there that they showed reverence. And this expression actually is interesting. It's not just the the reverential awe that we often see in the Old Testament. The phrase literally in Hebrew here is they feared the presence of. And when we see that in the Old Testament, that's speaking of actual fear. It's like the fear that they felt at Mount Sinai when when the mountain shook and they were scared. And that's what hits them here. They realize God had brought these consequences and they were afraid. It's that terrible awe felt when standing before a holy God who holds your very existence in his hand. We just sung a song earlier. God is a consuming fire. It's that kind of awe. And we would do well, beloved, to remember that that God demands our allegiance and he is not to be trifled with or treated lightly. C.S. Lewis said he's not a tame lion. Well, the work of rebuilding resumed. We learned from chapter 5 that again, well, here's a surprise. They started building the uh, temple again. They faced more opposition. But this time, 
They trusted in God's word. And notice this time, verse 14, the Lord stirred their hearts to action. You need to just come to God with a willing heart, a desire to obey, a repentant heart, a heart of faith. God will do the work. God will do the work. We can take comfort in what he tells his people here. I am with you. And they were resolved to obey. Did he not say in Hebrews 13, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Did he not say in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ? And again, did not Jesus say in Matthew 28, lo, I'm with you always. Beloved, God will do his work in and through us by his spirit. If we would but have a heart of faith that flees from sin and desires to make God the ultimate priority. Let's pray. Lord, it's a humbling and sobering message. Lord, forgive us. Root out any apathy in our own hearts. I know there's some in mine. I know it. Root out the desire for ease and comfort in us. Root out the, our discontentment, our greed, our lust, our pride, our, our hedonism. Root those things out of our lives, Lord, for they are distractions that keep us from fulfilling purpose to which you have called us, which is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and make him known. Father, show us any areas in our lives where you are not the priority. Show us any places that we've neglected to give you glory. Lord, show us areas in our lives that we've put wainscoting on our walls and neglected your house. Father, work in us to have hearts of faith, humble faith that trust you, that desire to obey. And then we are excited, Lord, to see the work that you do in us as you declare that you are with us. We pray all these things so that Christ will be honored, so that you will be glorified. Amen.